most of us realize how much they do behind the scenes. And we would love for you to be involved, either by giving or, as they said, if, if you're an encouraging person. So check with your spouse first to make sure that's true. And if, if they say, yes, you are indeed encouraging, and you're actually okay with finances, then we have a place for you too. Um, but it is such a wonderful ministry. Don't hesitate to send people their way to help out, to volunteer. Uh, they use men and women, and we're thrilled. Father, we pray now for those uh, in our midst that are hurting, that need help. We pray that we would be a church of both word and deed. That we'd be a church that gives cold cups of water in the name of Christ and also proclaims your gospel grace. Uh, We pray that you would make us uh, all of those things that you desire us to be. And thank you for... Uh, the men and women that work diligently behind the scenes to make that happen, that give of their time, that navigate uh, delicate situations. Make us a church where we're not afraid to reach out and say that we're in need or that we need help. Uh, Make us a church uh, that is willing to reach out to others. And uh, Father, now as we come underneath your word, do only what you can by your Holy Spirit Convict where you need to, encourage where you need to, comfort where you need to, Holy Spirit. But above all, lead us to Christ and to his truths on this uh, Reformation Sunday morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The, The question before us this morning is this. How can I live a life of urgency without apathy or anxiety? without falling into either one of those two pitfalls. But how can I live a life that's urgent, not frantic, but urgent? When my wife was 10, I think 10, I, need to, I should have checked with her this morning, but she was asleep when I left. Uh, I, I believe she was 10 when a kerosene heater blew up in her home. And her dad actually tried to turn it off. It was an old kind of farm home in northern Virginia. He took a chair, tried to push it out, and the chair, it was a wooden chair, the chair actually burned up into the kerosene heater. It was that hot. He finally got it to the precipice, but the flames came up and over his head. And Elizabeth said by the time she was getting out of the house, all the windows were popping. And uh, she made it out. The cat made it out. Her uh, two brothers and sister made it out. The parents made it out. But they sat there in the field of northern Virginia because it burned through the phone line. And so they couldn't call anybody. And they lived out in the country and they just watched their house burn. I think it was December 17th. All the presents, everything in there. When your house is on fire, there is a sense of urgency, right? You have to have urgency without apathy. You can't say, no, wait, I need to go get the cat. No, wait, I got to get those pictures. No, wait, I need to get my wedding dress. No, wait, I need to get my passport. No, wait, I have to get those things. No, the first thing you do is you have to get out before anything else. There's no time to be apathetic. And at the same time, uh, you can't have anxiety. There's a reason why it's illegal for me to yell, and everybody's safe, nothing's happening right now, there's no fire alarm pulled. I don't think I'm breaking a law by putting it in this context, but I'm not quite sure. But there's a reason why I can't yell (laughs) F-I-R-E. It creates panic, right? And we know that anxiety, I'm not going to get to see that pop star in Seoul, Korea, creates panic 
which last night killed 153-some people, last I saw this morning, because the anxiety that I wouldn't get to see that person create a panic, and everybody ran, and it produced carnage. So how do we live that life of urgency for the gospel, urgency for the Lord, without falling into apathy and without falling into anxiety? That's the question before us. Now, first, let's talk about apathy. Apathy, and basically apathy means this. It's ah, pathos in the Greek. Pathos is to have compassion. Uh, Ah is a negative, so it's ah, pathos. So you don't have compassion. Uh, You're lacking compassion. You're numb to the world. You don't have, you can't find any emotion. You just don't care. That's apathy. Well, apathy can happen through three ways. Through not working, through overworking, or through hard working. First of all, it can happen from not working. That's how you kind of normally think of it. You know, you've become, as Pink Floyd would say, comfortably numb. And you just don't care anything about anything anymore. And you don't want to get out there and apply for the job. And you're 55, and you're still in your mom's basement, and you, you just cannot not play the video games, and you just don't want to do anything. You, and, and maybe it's a fear of failure. There could be many reasons for it, but that's the obvious one. The other one is overworking. Apathy can come from overworking. You just get burnt out. You've worked yourself to the bone, so much so that then you just don't care anymore, and you start phoning it in. I have a pastor friend, and uh, that was his situation. He worked himself to the point of extreme burnout, and the result of that was he started phoning it in, and he started plagiarizing sermons. He would get home on a Saturday night, and he'd say, I just don't have it in me. And he did it in four different blocks. It wasn't one time. He did it for a couple months one time. They caught him. Did it for another couple months another time. They caught him. The fourth time, they finally defrocked him. And they said, this is a pattern. We've got other issues. You can't be a pastor here anymore. He was explaining the whole thing to me, confessing to me. He said, Andy, I'm so, I'm so, so sorry. I mean, I knew I was burned out. I knew I was doing it. I was phoning it in. I was overworking. It left me with just apathetic feelings about the church. I'm so sorry. And I said, Bro, you don't need to apologize to me. And with a smirk in his uh, kind of lips and a little glimmer in his eye, he said, oh, I do need to apologize to you. I never thought your sermons were good enough to plagiarize. (laughs) That's what he said. I was like, okay. I just went with Keller and Sinclair Ferguson the whole time. I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's legit. Do that. Hardworking. Hard working can lead to apathy. Now, we don't think hard working normally does. We think apathy is only the first category, right? Just being apathetic, not working. But hard working can lead to apathy. I have the right to rest. I, I have taken uh, so much burden from this company. Do you know how much I paid for this resort? You can fill up my drink. Do you know how much I've paid to be here? Do you know how hard I've worked to get to this point? It's time for you to serve me. The seniors in high school can be apathetic because they're at the top of the food chain. Everybody else has to serve them. The senior partner of the firm can be apathetic. I've hard worked to get here. Now you have to serve me. I can take the rest of the day off. The senior citizens, senior whoever can become apathetic because they feel like they deserved it. And that's actually what's happening in this text. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
But he said, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful, plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, just a few notes on this text. We'll apply it and move on to anxiety. First is this. He wanted God simply to bless his plans. If you look at the very first phrase, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, You, Christ, are here to make my life comfortable. And, And you just figure out whatever you need to figure out to adjudicate this claim, if you would. And then look what he says in verse 15. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I don't know who needs to hear that today, but probably the majority of us. Because we are bombarded in this country with billions of dollars in marketing saying that you have to have this product, this shirt, go to this movie, to be happy. We're bombarded with it. Do you know the insane amounts of money spent on this? Matter of fact, the number one influencer in uh, social media, Mr. Beast, which I don't know why that's his name, but apparently that is, is trying to get a $1.5 billion valuation for the rights to his name. Because by holding up a thing of toothpaste, on his Instagram, he can sell all that toothpaste. And we've completely lost our minds. But that is happening all the time in America. And we're swimming in those waters. You cannot get out of them. They're the waters that you are in. Christ says to them, he says to us, life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. It just doesn't. Quit believing that lie. But it's interesting that the seeking of apathy is exhausting. Look at what he says. I'll tear down my barns and I'll, be, I'll build more. I'll build larger ones so that I can relax. I'm going to work so hard to get to that place so I can phone it in, so I can take the rest of the time off. And there's another lie that we constantly buy into. Once I get the kids out of college, once I get the kids out of diapers, once I get married, once I uh, am able to buy that house, once I get this amount of money in the bank, once I can do this, then I'll be able to relax. Then I'll say, soul, relax. You've made it. You got here finally. And Christ says, that's, that's a lie. That's not going to work either. And then look what he says in verse 20. Let's not clean up the language of Jesus where he says, Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night, this night your soul is required of you. In other words, don't be apathetic. The house is on fire. The world is on fire. Follow me. What are you doing? Come follow me now. Don't wait. Follow me now with where I'm going. So how do we practically get out of our apathetic state? Either by 
not working, overworking, or hardworking? Well, the first thing we do is we focus on the treasure that we have in Christ. Verse 30, 21 and 34. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And then the other side of that, you see in verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what Christ says is this, I am the treasure for you. Uh, You don't have to work to get me. I've already come to you. And because of that, enjoy me, your treasure. You know, what are the treasures of this world? Well, one of them is trophies. Uh, we're in the participation culture, so everybody gets one. But there's a couple of trophies that not everybody gets. The two most famous trophies, in my opinion, is the claret jug that you get for winning the British Open and the Stanley Cup. Like, even if you're not a sports fan, and I'm not a hockey fan, but you, I can see it in my mind. Like, both of you can see it. And you know what happens when you get your hands on that trophy? When you get the hands on the trophy, especially the claret jug, all of them will take it and they'll look at it and they'll start turning it, and they'll look at all of the names on there, and they'll say, and my name's on there too. Same thing with the Stanley Cup, because all the teams are written on there. And then what's the next thing you do? You take it, and you fill it with your beverage of choice. We're not going to get into that, but then we drink, you know, you give your, to your manager, to your agent, to the trainers, to the coaches, to your family. Everybody take a sip out of this treasure which I have earned and in a real way Christ has earned the treasures of life for you and your name's on the cup he has written your name's in the book of the law your name's in the book of life and he says now drink of it all of you we'll pour in whatever you want drink of my treasure given to you drink of my grace given to you drink of what I have won of what I have secured for you my mercy, my love drink deeply of all of these things treasure up all of the things that I have done on your behalf to have your name written on this cup I've drank the cup of dregs and the cup of wrath down to the very dregs so you might have this cup of blessing so you might drink from the cup of victory i've taken the wrath of god on the cross and i drank that to the full every last drop of your sin so that you can now drink in the victory that you have in christ so treasure that now if that happens you can let go of the things of this world for example told you this years ago, uh, but I'll tell you again, 1904, uh, William Borden, who was the heir of Borden Milk, uh, by 17, he was already multi, multi, multi-millionaire, 1904 money, so you know, close to a billionaire in today's economy. He took a year off, took a gap year before he went to Yale, and he traveled around the world. And after he traveled around the world, he became so convicted that so many in the world didn't have anything. Matter of fact, when he went to Yale, a classmate said this of him. He was far ahead of us spiritually, far more ahead than anybody else. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ, and he really did. There's an 18-year-old at Yale. This guy is far ahead of us spiritually. Like, he's already, he's not just testing the waters anymore. He's gone all in. And if you know the story, you know that he gave most of his money away to become a missionary, and he wrote in his Bible, no reserve. And then he went to Egypt, 
and uh, wrote in his Bible, no return. And then he contracted the disease and died just a few months later and wrote in his Bible before he died, no regrets. No regrets for following Christ in this life. No regrets for letting go because he is already my treasure. Now ours, we, we don't live that way. Uh, we live a little bit more apathetically, a little bit more negotiation, much like Martin Luther. Remember the story of Martin Luther? He was in a thunderstorm. If you've ever been in the middle of a field, I have, only once, in the middle of a field where there's a thunderstorm and you can't get anywhere and lightning goes like really close to you, I was tempted to do the same thing Martin Luther did. He found himself in that situation, lightning popped right beside him, and he said, St. Anne, help me and I'll become a monk. (laughs) Help me out of this one situation now. That's That summarizes how most of us live a life with God. Get me out of this situation now, and I'll do this for you. Unfortunately, Luther was apparently a bad negotiator because he said, I'll be a monk. And then the storm cleared, and he said, oh, I probably could have negotiated for a little bit less than that. But he became a monk, and he became an Augustinian monk. And he lived this life trying to pursue getting faith and getting works done so that God would approve of him until he finally realized that there was this alien righteousness outside of him and that faith was a gift and given to him. And he nailed those theses on the door of Wittenberg, the first of which is this, all of life is repentance. We never leave stage one. You never get past Faith and repentance, faith and repentance, faith and repentance. That is the Christian life. So maybe you need to repent of being apathetic. Maybe you need to repent that you're anxious. Uh, According to the World Health Organization, there's been a 25% increase in anxiety and depression since 2022. I mean, 2020 with COVID. Before then, it was already on a meteorotic rise. It was already going up. And then it just went up more. I've said this before, but we're at kind of a all-time high now of anxiety and depression. And I don't see it leveling off. I think it might only go up. Part of the problem, there's two problems. Uh, Margaret Wheatley and um, Wellman and Ritter out of Chicago have all recognized the problem that we're living now in permanent crisis which is what makes us all so anxious because of globalization and the amount of things that we can see, right, on a daily basis. Fifty years ago, would we know that there was 153 people killed in Seoul, Korea last night? I doubt it. At least not for months. You might pick it up in the back page of a Wall Street Journal. But now we get news just so quick, and all we see is crisis. And most of the crisis that we see, we actually have no ability to solve or help. So we're living in that stage of continual anxiety, of seeing problems that we can't do anything about, combined with social media. You used to go to a dinner party. I remember Elizabeth and I, early on in our marriage, would go to a dinner party, and she would say, man, that girl looked really pretty tonight. And she meant it. She, she wasn't, like, coveting or anything. She just was recognizing. And I always thought it was a trick. I was like, I didn't know whether to say yes or no. Or... <laughs> so I would just stay quiet, turn on the radio, stare ahead. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, well, she looked really beautiful, too. 
I get you're you're beautiful. Uh, and, and you would you go to the dinner party? You maybe compare yourself to ten women. Look at them. Where do I fit in this? Now, social media. Everybody looks beautiful, and everybody looks beautiful all the time. Or a couple of self-righteous people who say, this is what I really look like. You know, do that self-righteous kind of thing. Look how bad I look when I don't have makeup on. But nonetheless, we're always in this comparison mode because we're getting way too much information. And so we're anxious. Verse 22. He said to the disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you'll eat, about your body, what you'll put on. You ever been with somebody who uh, is looking at a room full of clothes and says, I don't have anything to wear? No, you just don't have confidence to wear. You're anxious about how this will make you. You get plenty to wear, Maggie and Kate. For, <clears throat> for life is, oh, yeah, for them it's like put more on, please. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, and they neither have storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If you are then not able to do as small of a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. Your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags so that you don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Just a few points here of application. We'll move on to the next one. First, consider the birds. Consider the ravens. You can't add an hour of your life to your life by worrying. It just doesn't help. It doesn't solve anything. Now, the question is, do you really believe that? And do you recognize it when you're getting worked up and anxious? This is actually not helping. I'm going to repent of it. I'm going to ask God to step in at this moment and fix my mind on the treasures of Christ, on things above, rather than the things I can't actually control. I'm going to ask the Lord to intervene. I'm going to live by the Spirit at this moment, rather than worrying about the things that are in his hands, not in mine. Consider the lilies, how they grow. And then he compares them to Solomon. They're like Solomon. These flowers of the field, they're going to burn. They're all going to be thrown into the oven. But in this little moment, they're beautiful, more beautiful, and have more possessions than Solomon. Let me put it in a way that we can understand. The richest person in Greenville, because there is somebody who's the richest, we could throw out names. That would be fun. See if we could all figure it out together. I don't know if there's an objective way to actually know who the richest is. But whoever the richest person in Greenville is could probably be bought by Darla Moore out of Columbia. Maybe not. Maybe it's comparable. But Darla Moore could probably be bought 10 times over by the senior partner at Guggenheim or Appaloosa or Goldman Sachs. 
who could probably be bought out a hundred times over by any sheik in Saudi Arabia, who could probably be bought out a billion times over plus more by our Lord, who owns everything, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it in the fullness thereof, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So when you go outside and look up at the stars, maybe not today, but when these clouds leave and you put down your phone at night and go for a walk and look up at the stars, all of that he's made, all of the universe he owns. So what could you possibly be worried about? He knows you. The only thing that you could be worried about is this. If you believe that God doesn't have the resources, doesn't care, or doesn't know you. But again, look at the text. Verse 30, look at the beauty of this. The Father knows that you need them. The Father knows your need. Not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your Father in heaven. We Affirm that in our confession in Heidelberg 1. He knows your need. And then look at what he says. If you believe he's not good, verse 32, this is Jesus. This is the second person of the Trinity. God incarnate saying this. This is not just a rabbi or a spiritual teacher or some health you know, guru. The Father's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom. What in the world do you have to worry about? You have everything that you need. Faith is foundational, but it's also fundamental to believe the things that Jesus tells us in his word. Now, how do we kind of apply this? Well, we apply this. The first one was treasure with Christ. The second way that we kind of apply this is the doctrine of union with Christ. Uh, Dr. Alan Ehrenberg is a a brilliant um, professor and he's, probably, he's one of the leading scholars right now on anxiety and depression. And he said one of the reasons why anxiety and depression are so high is because of increased feelings of inadequacy. And then I quote, success is attributed to and expected of the autonomous individual. I don't want to go t- too far down this lit review here, but Charles Taylor, the famous Canadian philosopher, he was the one who first said, once we separated out the individual from community and individuals had to rise or fall on their own, it wasn't whether a community rose or fall on their own, that's when we began all of our identity issues. And when that happened, we began all of our anxiety and all of our depression issues. But this is why union with Christ is so important. Because if you're a Christian, no matter what, You are united with Christ, and he's united with you. That's what Zwingli, another reformer, realized. Zwingli said, Christ is our justification from which flows our good works. If they're of Christ, they're good. But if they're ours, they're neither right nor good. Christ is our righteousness. Our works are good only insofar as they are of Christ. Uh, Zwingli was one who recognized, no, I'm actually united with Christ now. And all the good things and all the hard things. So if you have a great day, you say at the end of the day, God, I'm united with you. And what happened today and and what I was able to do and the grace I was able to give, that came from you. That didn't come from me. And if you have an awful day, you're able to say, God, now I know what it's like to be mistreated like you were mistreated. Now I, I know what it's like to be 
misunderstood like you were misunderstood. I'm united with you in your death and your resurrection. Union with Christ is one of the key understated themes of theology. My friend Rankin Wilburn wrote a book about it called Union with Christ. You should buy it. It's a brilliant book. In it, he says, in Christ you're accepted, but that acceptance no longer has to be earned or maintained. It's granted by grace and guaranteed in Christ. This doesn't mean you stop working. Doesn't mean you get apathetic. But it does mean that you now work in a totally new way. You're no longer working for approval. You're working from approval. And the last little analogy here, and then one point here at the end. Uh, what Wilburn puts in his book, he used to be a pastor in uh, L.A. And he had a woman, young girl, who struggled, struggled, struggled with anxiety. And then she got a job at Disneyland. And when she put on that costume of Mickey Mouse, she could be like out of her shell. She could, you know, walk in. She would greet people. She had no, and as soon as she clothed herself in that costume, she had security. That's kind of what it's like to be united with Christ. You clothe yourself in righteousness. I had a friend the other day. They have an accuser in the church that they're in. It's going absolutely horrible. And uh, this individual knows who the person who's gossiping about them is. And uh, she walked right up to her and said, we need to talk right in front of everybody, right at the center of the church. She said, I did it because I realized I was clothed in Christ. I'm clothed in his righteousness. I am united with God. And there's nothing that can make me ununited with God in his death and in his resurrection. And he's united with you. Now, quickly, I'm just going to say one thing about this text. I want to read it, though, because there's one more section. We want to live in urgency. Um, urgency does not mean panic. But there is a sense, friends, that the church of Christ today in America and in the South, where there's a lot of churches that have critical mass, have lost their urgency, have, have lost their desire to, let's be about the mission of Christ. Let's go do this. Let's go find people who aren't believers and bring them in. Let's go hand mercy out. Let's go do all of these things. There's a sense of urgency. It doesn't mean panic. That's why Delta Force operators, uh, I've listened to a lot of military podcasts, because that's one of my regrets in life is not going into the military. Delta Force operators on the way to uh, an infill often sleep on the Black Hawk helicopter on the way in. There's a sense of urgency, but they're, they're not panicked. They know the plan. That's why Christ could sleep on the boat on the way to Galilee. Uh, there's a sense of urgency, but I'm still going to rest. Let me read this, make one point. We're going to sing... Stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like the men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so they may open the door to him once he comes in and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and will have them recline at the table, and he'll come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known... At what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left the house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. I'm not going to read the next paragraph, but suffice it to say there's a positive analogy. The person is found ready and waiting. There's a negative analogy where the person believes that the master is not going to come. And the solution is this. We long for Christ, 
That's how we live urgently. We long for Christ. Sometimes when Elizabeth and I haven't connected emotionally, spiritually, uh, cognitively, physically, any of the above, when we haven't connected and we finally do connect and you have that dinner and you're able to talk, we'll say to one another, I've missed you. I was around her for last month. I mean, I, we weren't traveling, but we hadn't had a chance to connect. And there might be, that's what longing for Christ is. It's a little step different from union with Christ, which always exists. But longing for Christ is, I want more of you. I've missed you. And here's the kicker. Christ longs for you. I don't know if you saw it. Verse 37, blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and will have them reclined at the table and he will come and serve them. That the one that the master finds ready and waiting, God, we're longing for you to come. We're longing for your return. He's the one that shows up and says, now it's my time to serve you. Why don't you all take a break? Well done, good and faithful. Take a rest. You've been waiting for me. You haven't been apathetic. You haven't been anxious. You've been urgency living, longing for my return. Now, says our Lord, I'll serve you. Or as Zwingli says, our confidence in Christ does not make us lazy, negligent or careless. But on the contrary, it awakens us, urges us on, and makes us active in living righteous lives and doing good. For there is no self-confidence to compare with this. Father, we pray now that you would renew in our lives a longing Christ for you. And that we would reimagine what it's going to be like when we get to meet you face to face. And what we'll lose, all the pains, all the cancers, all the doubts, all the trials, all the anxiety will be far away. The curse will be broken. And what we'll gain, perfect peace and satisfaction and joy and camaraderie and no more sin. So, Father, make us long for that and help us then to live with that kind of urgency. We pray in your name. Amen. Before we sing, listen to these words from the song.